Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. Thanks for tuning into the program. On today's Great Commission Conversation, we have the conclusion to my interview with John Nelms, founder of Final Frontiers Foundation, a ministry dedicated to raising support for national church planters. Brother Nelms has been at this for 35 years, and as you'll hear, he's passionate about what he does. In this episode, Brother Nelms makes the case for supporting nationals, and he covers the all-important issue of accountability, which, in my opinion, is the greatest concern when it comes to the issue of supporting foreign nationals. Now for part two of this Great Commission conversation with missionary John Nelms. Brother Nelms, I really wanted to get to the to the subject of that I that I know is nearest and dearest to your heart, which is the the subject of, of supporting nationals. One of the major conclusions that you come to in your book in solving some of the problems that face us in the fulfillment of the Great Commission is getting monetary support into the hands of national church planters. So in your view, why is supporting national church planters an essential element of fulfilling the Great Commission? In my view, it is the only element available to us for fulfilling the Great Commission. I see the missionary as kind of like a, um, a scout. Uh, you know, before MacArthur would invade the, an island, he would send out a, a, a small group of men in camouflage to go in there and check out the land, just like Joshua did with the spies. And then they come back and then the main force attacks. Well, I see the missionaries is, is, is almost like scouts for us back here in America to see where do we need to be sending men to get the job done. And so I think they have a very, very important role to play. We have a part of our ministry that has men in it that are American men. And that's what they do. They go and scout out the land. But we don't just pick a country at random. We'll have we'll be contacted by some national preachers in that country. So we'll go interview them, look at their works, interview people, uh, spend a week or two with them or a month. Uh, there's guys that, that are cons- we're considering for support that we've been checking them out for six and seven years. Why? Because I want to make sure, you know, our, our policy is before we start supporting a guy, we want to check him out thoroughly so that we're not embarrassed somewhere down the road, uh, because that would destroy our credibility and our, our ability to raise funds. Now, why do I think the nationals are so important? One is because it's their culture. The number one reason given by missionaries for quitting their field was the inability to adapt to the culture. And frankly, that's usually the wife. Somewhere along the line on furlough, the wife will say to the husband, if you want to go back, you can go back, but I'm staying here and I'm keeping the kids with me. And miraculously, within a week or two, a church calls him up to be their pastor, and so he quits the mission field after learning the language and raising all that money. It happens more times, literally more times than not. Now, that's fine because maybe they weren't called of God in the first place. Maybe they should not have gone. They went because they were... They love the Lord. They want to do what they thought was the highest calling they could do for him. But God wants us to do for him what he wants us to do for him. Uh, and, that, and that holds true with any believer, national or American. So it's their culture. It, they can handle the food. They can drink the water. They can speak the language. Everything that we have to learn to do, they've been doing it since they were toddlers. 
the only thing they don't have is the ability with resources to be able to go out and buy Bibles, uh, buy tracts. There are countries, entire countries, that don't have a single Christian bookstore in them. That you, ha- you have to search for a place to find a Bible. If you can't find a Christian who has a Bible, then you won't ever know where to find a Bible. It shouldn't be that way. They need the resources that we have that we take for granted. Uh, once I was in a certain Caribbean island, I think it was St. Lucia's, and there was a Bible college there that the missionary who started it was retiring. And he was giving his entire property to the, to the Association of Preachers there that he had worked with and all of his belongings. And there were a couple of Americans there, and one of them taught at his Bible school. And I was standing there talking to him, and he was getting quite upset because he saw these uh, island preachers coming in there and walking out with, with uh, you know, boxes full of clothes and that sort of thing. You know, he was upset with what he saw them receiving. They were upset because they told me when they went into the basement of the house that the missionary there, who they loved, but they said there were there were containers, shipping containers, filled with clothes that had never been opened while their kids are running around naked. Well, the missionary meant well, but he never occurred to him. Take the clothes that you don't even need and give them to somebody else. Well, one guy, their leader, the missionary had decided to give him his car. And it was an old car, but still a car. And this American missionary standing next to me was disgusted, he and his wife. And he said, look at him. He was the, the, the national preacher was walking around the car looking at it, honking the horn. You know, he, he never dreamed he'd have a car in his life. He was like a kid at Christmas morning. And the American missionary standing beside me was disgusted because the guy gave him a car. And he made this statement. He said, look at him. He doesn't even know how to change the oil. And I didn't want to put this brother down in front of his wife. So as politely as I could, I said, well, why don't you teach them how? Now, this particular American missionary taught in this Bible school. He, he taught computer. They had one computer in their Bible school with three students. I asked him, do the students have computers at home? He said, no, they couldn't afford a computer. Would, are they allowed to come here to the school and practice? No, I just teach them how to do it. I said, well, what else do you do? He said, I teach a Sunday school class. Oh, that's great. What else do you do? He said, that's it. So here's a brother who teaches a one-hour Sunday school class and teaches three hours a week in computer to guys who don't own a computer. So he's working four hours a week, but he's being supported full-time as a fundamental, independent, premillennial Baptist missionary who's just doing a bang-up job there in the islands. If the churches that supported him knew what he wasn't doing, they would drop his support in a heartbeat. Right. But a national preacher, they're out there working. They're held account- They're not held accountable to people thousands of miles away who don't know them. They're held accountable to their own church, to their own families, to the their deacon boards and so forth. They're, they're- and then we have a method whereby we keep a thorough accountability on what they're doing. And if we see a guy getting lazy, we drop his support. I want to come back to that issue of accountability. One of the things that you're addressing there is just simply the efficiency issue. The economy, because what it takes to support, typically in a third world country, for what it takes to support one American missionary like me, 
you can support a hundred national preachers who already speak right. the language, who already know the culture. Sure. So, so from an efficiency standpoint, the language acquisition, cultural adaptation, those are, those are non-factors for a lot of national workers. And then, of course, they can operate on a fraction of what, financially speaking, of what it requires an American missionary. Um, I'm aware of that component. There's another element that you make reference to in your book. If it's been 10 or 11 years since the book was written, then I think that this this aspect is even more significant today. And that is just simply the geopolitical landscape when it comes to travel, when it comes to entry, when it comes to visa issues and residency. As I've been thinking about this issue and, and been prompted to think about this subject by what I've read that you've written, there are simply some places around the world that American missionaries do not have access to. And I think that this is as compelling, perhaps, a reason to to uh, see if we can facilitate some national workers as even the efficiency component, because if we are going to get the gospel to every creature, if we are going to disciple the nations, then we've got to do that in places that we perhaps can't get residency, in places that we can't in some cases, you can't even get a tourist visa, and yet these places are some of the neediest places on the globe. There are plenty of critics of this method of mission support, and um, and and some of the criticisms are are legitimate in as much as it's not done properly, it's not done effectively, it's not done with accountability, and we'll we'll speak to that momentarily. But you address a good deal of these uh, critics in at length in your book. You've been fielding the criticisms for decades now. Um, I, I wonder if you can just address what are some of the more common objections to supporting nationals that you've encountered, and how how would you answer these objections? I praise God to be able to say that those the objections are not out there so much anymore. There are still some. Uh, clusters of preachers that because of their leadership in their fellowship or whatever, who may have problems, they have problems. But most people have, have welcomed it. Uh, but when I first started, I was told that I was a traitor, uh, uh, that I was taking American money away from American missionaries. And my response to that was, um, there's no such thing as American money. If you believe the Bible, the scripture says, uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything on this planet belongs to God, including the money. So it's not American money. It's God's money. Uh, we, we preach that from the pulpit when it comes to building church buildings. So why doesn't it apply to missions too? Just because they're not an American doesn't mean they're not a missionary. Uh, you don't have to have blonde hair and blue eyes and white skin to be a missionary. You don't have to speak English to be a missionary. So if your purpose is to spread the gospel around the world, then we need to start spreading it around the world. If our purpose is to send out as many of us to them as we can, then we just keep doing it the same way we've been doing it and enjoy our failure. So that's how I would hit that objection. Uh, then there was a, well, you can't trust them. They're only in it for the money. Somebody said to me once that they're nothing but rice Christians. And that was a terminology that was popular back in the 80s, referring to the Christianity in China that said that they'll believe anything you ask them to believe if you'll give them a bowl of rice to eat. And I found that to be incredibly insulting. Uh, how would we feel if people talked about us that way? 
you know, we only go to church because of what we get out of church for ourselves. We don't really believe in Jesus. So a lot of these objections just came from bigotry. Um, but then there were those who said, well, you can't trust them or how do you know what they're doing? Now, the main reason they'll say you can't trust them is because either bigotry, one, or two, they've heard a story about a national preacher that did something wrong with the money you gave him. Well, let me say, for any one story like that you can tell me, I could probably tell you a hundred about national preachers who misuse the money. But I could also tell you a hundred about Americans who've misused money. Let's see, does the name Jim Baker ring a bell? How about Dennis <laughs> Waggard? Uh, dare I even start mentioning some independent Baptist preachers? No, I won't do that. Uh, so here's what I've learned. Theft, lies, uh, adultery, all these things are not limited to national preachers. They're limited to any human being. And that's why you should know them who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, as the scripture says. So we have a thorough process of, as I say now, vetting these preachers before we ever get involved supporting them. And many of them we will never support. It doesn't mean they're bad guys. It might be a policy they have that doesn't, doesn't uh, fit in with our policy uh, that we have to be accountable to, to the donors that give us money. So, But uh, we're going to be very, very, very careful about it. So before we address the, the issue of accountability, let me ask you another question about the support of national church planters. Uh, one model for raising support for national church planters would be to bring some of these national church planters to the states. Um, that's, I think, particularly appealing to some churches just simply because of the novelty of it, because of, of having so little interaction with foreign culture and foreign peoples and so forth. But this is not um, this is not the approach of your organization. Why shouldn't uh, national church planters come to America to raise their support personally? Okay, well, that as you say, that is I'm going to answer that according to my personal opinion uh, based on experience. Uh, when we started Final Frontiers, and for those who don't get it, we are not a mission board. We are a ministry whose singular purpose is to raise support for national church planters, who we believe is a biblical term missionary. For them personally to eat and, and buy clothes and so forth, and for their projects, buying Bibles, getting them a bicycle so they can go out further, whatever the case may be. Occasionally helping them build a church building. We don't build it for them, but we help them build it. Uh, but the people often say, if you give money to a national, you'll ruin them. Okay, let's stop and think about that for a second. I can give, or we can give, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars a month to a missionary who's living in a country where he's making three times as much as the president of that country makes. And that's not going to ruin the missionary. But if I give a national preacher thirty dollars a month to buy food with, somehow that's going to ruin him. Can somebody please explain to me the logic in that? And even if you can find logic in it, can you show me a biblical principle? The scripture says that we are to do good unto all men, especially unto those who are the household of faith. The book of 3 John talks about the pastor of that particular congregation forbidding national preachers to come through, 
forbidding them to speak to the congregation and then forbidding the members of the congregation to contribute to them and then threatening to expel the members of his own congregation if they did contribute to the national preachers. All that's in the book of 3 John. So to me, God clearly shows that he wants us supporting his army of preachers irregardless of where they're from. I mean, when we went to war against Germany, You'd support a Canadian troop, wouldn't you? Or a British troop? Right. Well, maybe not a French troop, but <laughs> we wouldn't support anybody that was fighting the same people we were fighting. And in this case, we're fighting our Lord's enemy, Lucifer. And I'm going to support anyone that helps advance the cause of our, our Lord's kingdom on this planet, as long as their doctrines are not messed up. So... um when it comes to raising money, obviously the easiest way to do that is to bring them here. We don't do it. Well, Final Frontiers, to our knowledge, was the first Baptist ministry in the United States that was formed for the purpose of raising support for nationals. So nobody had ever heard of it when I started doing it. I would have to explain to them what a national preacher is and answer these same questions you're asking me and many, many, many more. Over the years, other guys caught the vision of what we're doing, and some worked with us. Some worked with us for a while, then started their own. Others heard about the philosophy through reading the book or whatever, and they started their own. Now there's probably 600 to 800 ministries similar to Final Frontiers raising support for nationals. The difference in us is that most of those are supporting national pastors, and that's good because they need it. For example, a typical village pastor in India is going to receive in offerings about $4 a month for his support. That's just how poor the people are. So there's nothing wrong with helping a brother in Christ, but that's not what we do. We don't support a man because he's a pastor. We only support him if he is a church planter. Whether he's a pastor or not, he may be an evangelist. He may be a missionary. But most of our guys are actually pastors, but they're, they're spreading out from their church, starting more churches and training men to go out there and start more churches. They're doing the work of the Great Commission in their own ministries. So it would be good to bring them here to America because then you can see them and touch them and ask their questions and be um, humored by their accents and things like that. However, uh, I'm not here to entertain anybody. I'm here to get the job done. And this is what I've discovered by watching other people. Most of our policies come from watching the mistakes of others and then adapting. So here's what I saw. When you bring a competent preacher over here from another country who's got a good personality, can speak English well, learns our culture, knows how to get to us, knows our heartstrings, you do ruin them. <laughs> you do ruin them when you do that. First of all, he's away from his family for a year. That's not smart to be doing that bring a man away from his family for an entire year to raise support. Two, he's living in a different culture that he's not accustomed to. So they're having to live in a culture that's not adaptable to them. They've never seen snow before. They live in a climate where on 85 degrees is chilly. you got to put on a jacket. And now you got them staying in somebody's house where it's, you know, five degrees outside and three feet of snow. They're likely to catch pneumonia. Uh, but the main reason for it is one is the cost. For what it costs just to fly a, mission, a national preacher to America and back, that same money he could live on for two years or maybe three years, giving food to his family, education to his kids. 
Now, what's more important, that the people here get to see the guy or that the guy gets to spread the gospel? I understand the need for seeing them and the accountability, but that's where we try to provide that accountability. You see us, you know us, you believe in us, you trust us. And therefore, we better have all of our ducks in a row, because if not, we're going to lose your support and you're going to call up your pastor friend and we're going to lose it from his church and so forth. So we we've developed a process to avoid that, which I'll get into with you later when you're ready. Another reason for not bringing them here is the ego. Some guys, they come over here and people tell them how great they are, and they've never heard that before. And so they go home thinking they're great or they're better than everybody else. But the, the worst part of it all, brother, is this. You bring a guy over here who only needs $1 to $5 a day to live like everybody else in his town lives. But he goes home with two and $3,000 a month support. He had a relationship with his church members that he has now lost. First of all, he's been gone for a year. He left as a man of poverty, just like them. He comes back as Bill Gates. He's not one of them anymore. He builds a big house. He buys a car. And all these pastors in his fellowship that he used to just be one of them, now he's the guy in charge because he's got the money. So we decided that we were not going to bring any preacher to this country for the purpose of raising support. The last thing that I wanted to talk to you about is the accountability issue and making sure that the system is not gamed and manipulated. I arrive at this whole subject of supporting nationals with a certain dose of skepticism. And and I think that some of us that are interested in and engaged in foreign missions approach this subject with some concerns and reservations because of certain stories that we've heard, or in other cases, things which we've witnessed in terms of the, the abuse of the system. So if, if I could offer this, this anecdote um, around this subject, and I realize the anecdotal evidence is, is never conclusive, and there's a certain danger in making determinations based on one experience, but my first my first trip to Africa was was really eye opening in this realm. For one thing, we had become interested in trying to support a uh, foreign national pastor, and a a man was suggested to us. We were given his name and some information about his family. Well, I met the man when I got there. And it turns out that he wasn't the pastor of the church at all. He was an assistant pastor. And I'm an assistant pastor. I'm not suggesting that it's dishonorable to be an assistant pastor. What I am suggesting is that if you're going to solicit support for a man, you ought to properly state his job title. Um, And then and then while I was actually in in southern Africa, Uh, right outside of a mission station. So there were a lot of issues here that that we could get into. But I preached at a church that was attached to a mission station. The the mission station, foreign dollars paid for the building, paid for the utilities. And I went to the church. The national pastor there took up two offerings. He took up a pastor appreciation offering, which they did once a month. And then he took up the tithes and offerings. He put both of those directly into his locked office. He counted them by, he counted all this by himself. And then after the church service, after I preached, he invited us to his home, also provided by the mission station, his electricity provided by the mission station. He arrayed his series of remote controls on the coffee table and uh, turned on his religious television to try to impress us. 
uh, all of this is all of this is fine. It is what it is. But it was only later that I found out that there that this man is receiving monthly support from more than one American church, and the guy's bankrolled by the mission station essentially, and he's getting all. It just exposed. It just exposed a real abuse of the system. Now, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the reality is that there are these kinds of these these instances that float around or you hear about a church in the Philippines say that they're changing the signage to accommodate different denominational groups to their church so that they can, as you say, double dip. So one of, of of course, one of the greatest challenges for any missionary is finding honest people to work with, and that's that's regardless of the that's regardless of the field. But in my estimation, the big issue when it comes to the support of national workers is accountability. And I know that this is something that's important to you. So, how does Final Frontiers maintain accountability for its national, its supported national church plan? Okay, thank you for that opportunity too, because that's really the crux of the issue. Uh, Before I delve into it, let me just make a couple of observational statements. Uh, I don't know where you went, what country it was, uh, what group it was, and I I don't even care to know. But what I suspect, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that he wasn't the only one living on the compound, that probably the missionaries were living there too. And they probably had a nice house and a car and everything else he had. So that's at least been my experience because nationals don't usually live on a compound unless they're an employee of that organization. And we don't support any employees of organizations. Uh, But he was wasting, he was being dishonest without a doubt. But where did he learn that from the missionaries that that trained him, whether they were living there with them or they had already moved away or whatever, he had to learn it somewhere. And part of it's just human nature, but I guess my point I'm making is the way you described him is the way most missionaries live. But we don't think about that being a problem if it's the missionary, but we are concerned if it's a national. And I understand why. It's because we don't expect them to live like we live. But why shouldn't we? why, Why do we get to live that way and they don't? Now, I'm not I'm not. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not justifying what he did or him living that way. I'm just asking the question, if it's good for the goose, why isn't it good for the gander? Now, the, the obvious reply to that would be, it's okay, but he should have been honest. Boom. You hit the nail on the head. That, that's it's really the issue. That's really the issue is yeah. a misrepresentation. Because then the church happening. can say, we don't care. Hey. Maybe he can buy a second car. That's up to them if they want to do that. But it's up to them to be honest. Well, let's suppose then you're going to come from my standpoint of saying, I believe it's acceptable to even advisable to support national preachers. Then how do you overcome that type of problem? Well, when I first started in this, I saw, I looked at national preachers through rose colored glasses. I mean, they were the saints that I, that should have been in the Bible and they could do no wrong. It just, On and on it went. Now I look at national preachers through microscopic glasses. I mean, I'm looking at what do they eat? Where do they buy their food? What's their wife like? Is she wasteful? Uh, What are their kids like? I mean, I examine them down to the nitty gritty. And when we finally feel like they pass the scrutiny, 
we don't stop examining them. We just start supporting them. But the whole time we're supporting them, we're still watching everything they do. And if we find them going astray in something, we'll counsel with them on it. If it's not corrected and if they can't convince us we're wrong, well, then we just drop their support. It's not a punishment, but we have requirements. And here's how it works. We require that a man be doctrinally sound. That means that he's wrong about everything we're wrong about. Uh, uh, morally pure. He has verifiable experience in already having started churches and trained men for the ministry. And four, that he's involved with a local accountability group. We don't support any Lone Rangers because we know what will happen. They'll be behind a locked door counting the offering. Uh, so they have to meet those four requirements. We don't even consider supporting a preacher unless he's already started at least two churches. Now, why? Well, because originally our requirement was he has to have started one church. So what we found out is that we'll support the guy and he'll go and he'll start a church in his hometown and then he'll never start another one. He met our requirement, which was more than a mission board would have for him. But still, all we did was enable him to start a church in his hometown. He had no intentions of going elsewhere. So he now has started at least two. And then we monitor his church planning activities after that. They have to be consistently and actively involved in church planting and discipleship. Now, we do not give them a quota, but we have a computer program that was written by my son-in-law, who is, well, his father was one of the, unlike Al Gore, his father was one of the inventors of the uh, World Wide Web. So he's grown up in the computer industry all of his life. And so we have our own proprietary software. Now, what does that do for us? We require everybody that we support to fill out a report form every three months. The report form asks, in the preceding three months, how many people have you led to Christ? How many have you baptized? How many villages have you evangelized? And how many churches have you started? If the answer to any of these is zero, explain why. So every three months, they gotta they got to give this to us. Then it goes on to ask them, do you have any special needs? Uh, we might ask a few personal questions that would be of interest to their sponsor when they read it. Well, these guys get these reports together. And they give them to their director. In other words, the guy that we've got in charge there to, to distribute the funds, to collect the reports, and to make sure we're not being hoodwinked. He can read through those things and check anything that he thinks is curious or questionable. Then he sends them to us. I have a member of my staff, happens to be my daughter, who reads every single report that comes in. And over the 35 years of doing this, uh, we've learned what to look for. We've learned little, little hints that something's not right here. And when we hit a red flag, the first thing we do is send an email to the director and ask him what's going on. Check this out for us. Or we'll pick up the phone and call the guy. If he can't get a sufficient answer, we'll just suspend the guy's support until we can get there ourselves and check it out. We are counting. If your church is supporting national preachers or your family is supporting a national preacher through our ministry, you're, you're giving us the responsibility to distribute those funds to those preachers in the way that you expect them to be done. If I fail on that, word is going to get out that I failed. And now everybody's going to stop supporting national preachers. So our accountability process is like the blood that pumps through a body. Without it, we're going to die. 
Now, we keep these reports. Uh, we, we, we do send them on to the sponsor so that you get the report that the, your preacher sent in, but we keep a copy of it from which we compile statistics. And with our computer program, we can link these guys together in a group. Let's take a, a certain district in, in um, Andhra Pradesh, India. Maybe we have 34 guys we're supporting there. And 30 of them average winning three people a week to Christ and baptizing uh, maybe two people a week and starting one new church every six months. But we see that one guy there starts a new church about every four years, and he hasn't baptized anybody all year, and he only leads about one person to Christ every three months. Obviously, he's different from every other preacher in his group. Why? What is it about him that makes him less productive than the rest of the men? So we'll correspond with the national director and bring that to his attention if he hasn't already noticed it. What's wrong with this brother? Is he sick? Uh, is he mute for some reason? Did he break a leg? He's in the hospital. He can't do it. Why is he not performing like everybody else is performing? Uh, and then he'll try to find out the answer, find out what he can do. If we see a trend like that growing amongst the group, that they're not as successful as they used to be, We'll bring in another Indian director from another part of the country and have a pastor's fellowship meeting, and then he'll show them what they do in their group and why they're so successful and kind of pump some energy into these guys. So we, we, have, a, we have a degree of accountability that people, people don't even grasp. We know what everybody's doing. Uh, if I was at the office now and you were to select a certain preacher, I could click a few buttons and I'd have every picture he's ever sent to us every report he's ever sent to us, and the statistics in an Excel spreadsheet format of what he's reported during every quarter, what is his annual average, his monthly average, his lifetime totals of people saved, baptized, uh, villages evangelized, and churches started. I could give you all that within a matter of seconds. So accountability for us is everything, everything. Then, on top of that, we're constantly traveling. That's why I live in the States. Uh, most of my time is either speaking in churches here or working with the nationals overseas. And I'm usually going anywhere from two weeks to two months at a time or even three months at a time. But I don't ever go anywhere by myself. I always have people going with me. That's accountability for me. But it's also accountability for our ministry. They can see what these preachers are doing. And if they're doing what that guy you mentioned is doing, Oh, we'll, we'll see that real fast, and we'll find out why before we leave town. And the decision will be made on whether we can support him or should we just drop him. He better have some good reasons for what he's doing. Now, if he's, if he's honest and humble but just ignorant, he was never trained any better than that, then we'll teach him how to do it better. We, we don't want to destroy the guy, but we don't want to support something that's not correct. So we for accountability, we have the initial investigation that can take years we have the follow-up investigation with, with quarterly reports. Uh, we have trips. And then anytime something looks suspicious, we check it out. Now, let me tell you a story that will – I'm, I'm going to have to cut this story way down. But we had a group in, in India that we worked with for many years. And we bought them many bicycles, probably three, 400 bicycles, because it grew up to be in a large group. And every time we buy a preacher a bicycle – he would stand there with the bicycle holding a sign saying, thank you, First Baptist Church, or thank you, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so for this gift. 
they take the picture, send it to us, and we'd send it on to the family or church that bought it for them. Well, one day my son walks in and shows me a picture of them with uh, two, two different guys with motorcycles standing there with their pictures. And I asked him, I said, this looks strange. Did you notice anything about this? He went, no, what, what is it? I said, they're not standing where they usually stand. There's a certain wall. That, that preacher had a compound because his home was there. His school was there, everything. He had a wall that they would always stand in front of a certain wall. But this picture was taken out on the street around the corner. And I, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it just struck me as funny. So my son took the picture, scanned it in, blew it up to where you could read the registration tag on the motorcycle. Then he went online to the Department of Vehicles for, the, for India, and he found that that was not a new motorcycle that they had just bought, that that was a motorcycle that was two years old that belonged to this head pastor's son. So what does that mean? He went out and he painted the motorcycle to make it look brand new, had the poor preacher stand in front of him, get his picture taken, thinking he was getting a motorcycle. And then he had to walk home. And that preacher pocketed the money. Well, he, he was dead within about six months. The Lord didn't put up with it. And everybody in, the, everybody in that area believes that God, well, what they say is his God killed him for stealing. And so in the end, that was a good testimony for the Lord, his power, kind of like Ananias and Sapphira. Right. But, it, but that man's gone now. So all, all that discovery came from me wondering why are they taking the picture on the street instead of inside the compound? So any little innocent thing that catches our eyes, we investigate it. Doesn't mean we won't miss something, but they better hide it good. Right. And, and for Final Frontiers, I guess that, uh, that accountability is a, is a two-way street. Uh, somebody challenged me not so long ago to, to read the K.P. Yohannan's book on revolution and world missions. And when I did some follow-up research on the Gospel for Asia ministry, it was really heartbreaking at, at what had happened. But um, it's not just accountability for the national preachers. It's accountability for the agency that's facilitating the, the funds. Is we have a board of directors, none of whom are paid uh, you know, as, as a seat on the board, as a lot of ministries do. Uh, we have an annual audit that's done with an outside auditing firm. Uh, and then the main accountability we have is, well, well one, we just, we're fully transparent. We tell everybody. If they ask a question, they can get it. Anybody can get a copy of our 990. They're online. But even before they went online, our policy was we'll mail a 990 to anybody who asked for it because we got nothing to hide. But the main thing is when we first started, I knew there was a lot of corruption in ministry. I've been in ministry all my life. And, um, I, I, and, and that was the time that Jim Baker was going back and forth to court for his abuse. And so when we started our ministry, we, we, I started it as a public foundation, not private foundation. Those are funded by wealthy families. A public foundation is funded by the public. But the public foundation has requirements on it from the U.S. government and the IRS in particular that you have to be extremely accountable. For example, now churches have to file 990s, but until recently they did not, neither churches nor Christian schools. From day one, from our very first year, we were required by law to file a 990, and it's filed with the Estate and Trust Division of the IRS in Denver, Colorado, which is where banks, trusts, and savings and loans have to send there. So we're considered 
to be like a financial institution by the U.S. government. They can revoke our status for anything they see that they don't like. And I set it up that way, not because I thought I would steal from the ministry, but I didn't know who might be coming after me. And I didn't want to create something that would benefit the theft of someone else. So if we're, if we're not thorough, we're, we're, we're in a heap of trouble. We'll lose our status and I'd probably go to jail. So, But still, that doesn't mean we couldn't steal. So people can investigate us to any degree they want to investigate us. That is, we don't take it as an offense. We take it as an opportunity to shine. Brother Nelms, I thank you for your time. Your book, The Great Omission, certainly prompted me to think and rethink some of these things. And I appreciate your passion about about these subjects. You've given your life to it. Having interviewed you, having read your book, I realize you are not beholden to any particular interest. You're you're certainly a an independent thinker and uh, you're serving the Lord and you're saying some hard things and calling on others to be thoughtful and accountable. Yeah. And I, I certainly appreciate uh, what you've given your life to and, and appreciate what you're doing for worldwide missions and for you taking the time to sit down for this conversation. Well, even if my voice or inflections don't demonstrate it, I, I have a great love for missionaries. I feel if I haven't learned something by now, I just need to quit. Whatever I've learned, I don't need to keep it to myself. I need to share it with others. And I shared out a concern for Christians and churches in this country, just like a parent would advise their child with great zeal if they saw them making a wrong step in their life or having the wrong friend or the wrong girlfriend to date or whatever. You don't hate that person, but you see your child making a mistake. And I, I see missionaries making mistakes because of the way they've been trained, not because of them. They're just doing what they've been taught. So let's let's train them better. I'm writing another book now for churches on how to create a, a uh, missions policy. And I challenge them to contact or to look at the letters they get from their missionaries. How many of them mention winning someone to Christ? How many of them even mention training someone or having started a church? And they're going to come up with pretty close to zero on those things because most missionaries either aren't doing it or they haven't been taught that that's important enough to report to their sending churches. So I'm, I'm saying this out of love and compassion. And if I might give a plug, uh, if people want the book, they're welcome to it. Um, I think you can get it online, like Amazon, or if you go to our final frontiers website, which is finalfrontiers.world, I think you can order it there. And we do have a month, a quarterly magazine we sent out free either by email or by paper, whatever people prefer. So, if anybody's listening, they want to know more about how we do it and what we do. And I cover these sort of things in every every article that we write. Uh, we have a lot of videos online that are instructional and entertaining. So take advantage of what the Lord has allowed us to produce to help uh, advance missions. And yes, together, together, we can fulfill the Great Commission in our lifetime. There's no doubt about it. My personal exposure to the support of national preachers, limited as it has been, had left me with more concerns about the practice than confidence. This is one of the reasons that I read John Nelm's book and that I wanted to interview him for the podcast. To read only those things that reinforce your preconceptions and to engage in conversation only with those that will prop up your own opinions is a dubious practice. Brother Nelm's book is entitled The Great Omission. Its lengthy subtitle is 
why we have failed in accomplishing our Master's departing command of global missions, and how we can be the first generation in history to finally and fully accomplish it. I'm certainly interested in fulfilling the Great Commission, and I recognize that there is far too much at stake to fail at the work of global missions. For that reason, I'm open to having conversations like this one. I think it would be a mistake to give to one ministry or missionary over another on the basis of some utilitarian calculus that computes more bang for one's buck. That kind of approach sounds highly American, but it's not biblical. There is more than thrift at stake. At the same time, the Great Commission demands thoughtful and effective stewardship. I think it would be a mistake to refuse to contribute to a given ministry or missionary on the simple basis of skin color or native language. These issues are never so cut and dry, which is why we need to seek the Lord and to continue to grapple with these subjects honestly and thoughtfully. I appreciate John Nelm sitting down for the conversation, and I'm thankful that you've listened in as well. I hope you'll join us next time on Great Commission Conversations. You can subscribe to this program wherever you receive your podcasts, and if it's been a blessing to you, feel free to invite others to tune in. I welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.